So good to see everyone again. Hope you're doing well. Um, we are uh, going to take communion later on in the service, so uh, hopefully you grabbed a, a little communion kit on your way in. If you didn't grab one, you can just uh, raise your hand, and uh, surely part of our welcome team will come and give you one. Um, okay, looks like everyone got one. If you want, you can kind of go get a head start on peeling that top layer, because once it gets dark in here, it's hard to, to see that. So if we start hearing the kind of ruffling sounds, I totally won't be offended. It's completely understandable. Uh, well, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, uh, we are in a series called Living Hope, and we are journeying through the book of 1 Peter. And as we've been saying kind of over and over, uh, this is a letter uh, by the Apostle Peter to churches uh, scattered throughout modern-day Turkey who are uh, living in a hostile environment. Uh, they are facing rejection, persecution, various forms of oppression because of their faith, and and they are just believers trying to figure out how to be the church amidst all the challenges and all the hardship. So Peter is writing this letter to both encourage them and to instruct them. And he begins by reminding them of the new birth that they've been given. And with new birth comes a new hope, and with new hope comes new values. With new values, a new identity, which we looked at last week. That they are God's spiritual house built on the foundation of Christ. They are God's chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. And as we'll see this morning, with all those new things, especially with that new identity, comes a, a new purpose. And we're going to see what that purpose is for them and what that purpose is for us as the church so we're going to be focusing uh, the majority of our time in two verses uh, this morning. First uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 11 and 12. Uh, Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So Peter begins, dear friends, a more literal translation would be beloved. Peter is reminding them of, of the care and the concern and the love that he has for these believers. He says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, foreigners and exiles. And, and this is a description he uses for them early on, beginning the letter. And here he's reminding them once again of their of their place in this world, for them geographically, and thus socially, culturally, but in light of their identity, spiritually, that they are foreigners and exiles. And when I first graduated out of college, I got a job as an accountant, as an auditor for a middle-sized accounting firm. And being on the bottom of the totem pole, I was assigned to a client called Video City, located in Bakersfield. And Video City was kind of their version of blockbuster Hollywood video, for those of us who remember you know, what, what that was. And, and I had to go out there every few months for quarterly reviews, eventually the annual audit, the annual inventory. And, and whenever I would go out to Video City, to Bakersfield, I was focused, determined to do what I had to do, get my job done, do it well, and to get out. You know, I wasn't trying to explore the nightlife. I wasn't trying to, to make friends. I didn't go looking for churches, trying to find biblical community. 
I wasn't looking to sign up for basketball leagues, bowling leagues, softball leagues. I wasn't looking at houses. And I wasn't um, checking out the local schools. Because I was just visiting, and it was Bakersfield. <laughs> now, if you're from Bakersfield, I don't mean to offend you. I apologize. I was 21, very immature at the time. But I wanted to get in, do what I had to do so that I can come back home. Right? And this is the kind of mindset that Peter is urging these churches to have when it comes to their purpose here on earth, on this short time, on this side of eternity. So what is that purpose? So we're going to start at the, the end of this section and, and make our way back where Peter will lay out what our purpose is as a church, the strategy in terms of how to fulfill that purpose, and the, the daily task at hand for each and every one of us as followers of Jesus. So looking at verse 12 again, it says, Live such good lives, which we'll get to, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, here's the purpose, they may see your good deeds, and glorify God on the day he visits us. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So Peter tells them, he tells us that your purpose as the church is to ultimately point people to Jesus. To devote yourselves to helping those who don't know Jesus, never heard of Jesus, helping them to, to get to know Jesus to live in such a way where the very people who are criticizing you and mocking you for what you believe, that when Jesus returns, they're going to be right beside you, praising and worshiping Jesus too. It says, do things, do good deeds that will help people get to know Jesus. They will learn to trust Jesus, grow to love Jesus, ultimately live to serve Jesus, enjoy Jesus. Now, this is the Great Commission in a nutshell, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded them, which includes making more disciples, baptizing even those disciples, and teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded, which includes making even more disciples, baptizing even those disciples, even teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And this is our purpose as God's chosen people, as his royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. And this is what we, we see even the Apostle Paul in his letters articulating, communicating in terms of the kind of commitment, the kind of focus and intensity that that were to have. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about the great lengths that he goes to to help people get to know Jesus. He says, to, to those who are like slaves, even though I'm free, I become like a slave so that I can help them get to know Jesus. To those under the law, I become like one under the law. To those without the law, I become like one without the law. To those who are weak, I become like one who is weak so that I can help them get to know Jesus. In the chapter 9, verse 22, he says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And then verse 24, he continues on. He says, do you not know 
that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So the Apostle Paul is using the metaphor of an athlete trying to win, competing to the best of his or her ability, training his or her body as the kind of focus, the kind of diligence and intensity that we are to have when it comes to fulfilling our purpose, helping people get to know Jesus. Right, when you look at kind of the great athletes today, you know, throughout history, the, the greatest of all times, right, oftentimes the, 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 what separates the great ones from the good ones, for the most part, you know, there's always exceptions, but what oftentimes separates them is not the talent, right, they're all talented, they're all gifted, but oftentimes it's, it's the work ethic, right, it's the drive, it's the, the determination, it's the grit. Right? The, for, the, for the great athletes, the, the, the sport that they play, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, it's not just something they do. Right? It, it's who they are. Right? And Peter is saying, in light of who we are, live out our life to fulfill our purpose. Now, how do we fulfill this purpose? How do we ultimately point people to Jesus? Well, taking a step back to the beginning of verse 12, he says, live such good life among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What Peter's saying is we are to live a life that is so unique, so extraordinary, so mind-boggling, that the very same people who are looking at us and thinking we are crazy, people who are mocking us, ridiculing us, that they would see our choices, our decisions, and being, they would be drawn closer to Jesus, all while still ridiculing, mocking, criticizing. This is what Peter is telling the church. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit plays a big role in this. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts, Holy Spirit that reveals, regenerates, but in God's sovereignty and providence, he, he uses our life to help do those things. Now, Peter doesn't go into details in terms of what this looks like. Like, okay, Peter, well, what do you want us to do? What does a, a really good, extraordinary life look like? Now, earlier in chapter one, he talks about the importance of loving each other deeply and getting rid of things like malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. In the very next section after our passage this morning, he's going to talk about the kinds of posture and attitude that we're to have in different contexts, different kinds of relationships. But he doesn't go into details in terms of what that looks like. But there's a couple of things that are implied. One, to, to live a, a really good life means we, we can't live a, a bad life, right? Like, we can't do things that are like overtly evil and sinful. The Apostle Paul actually addresses this in 1 Corinthians where he's telling some of the churches in Corinth, like, you guys 
are celebrating behaviors that even non-believers frown upon and make them cringe. Right? So to live a really good life is we can't live a bad life. And you know, Paul and Peter would say, like, don't do that. Stop doing those things. But at the same time, simply refraining from living a bad life doesn't equate to a, a really good life. Right? Just because we don't do bad doesn't mean that that is really good. It doesn't mean that it's extraordinary. It's unique. Right? Peter will, will, will remind them, right? What we know from Scripture, right? that even people who don't know Jesus, even people who don't believe that they are created in the image of God and they are capable of doing good things too and living a good life too. So if our life is not bad, but it's pretty similar to theirs and they don't have Jesus, why would they ever look at our life and think to themselves, I need Jesus. I want to get to know Jesus. You know, it's interesting when you kind of look back in history and you examine kind of how the early church kind of lived out their faith 2,000 years ago. Like, what were the things, some of the things that they did back then that set them apart from, from everyone else? Because we can look at history and say, for the most part, the early church did a pretty good job at pointing people to Jesus, hence why we, we're here today. In an article by pastor and author Timothy Keller titled Five Features That Made the Early Church Unique, I'm just going to summarize some of them, highlight three of them. Keller writes that, one, the early church, they demonstrated a profound level of acceptance. So back then, culture, society, people oftentimes stuck together in their own family, in their own race, ethnicity, in their own culture, their tribe, and religion. But Christians back then, they were extremely diverse. They would accept and embrace people of different social classes, different races, different ethnicities, different cultures. And they demonstrated a kind of diversity that was unprecedented in that time. In addition to acceptance, uh, the early church demonstrated a profound level of forgiveness. Right, Christians then were attacked, they were persecuted, they were imprisoned, they were put to death, yet they never taught retaliation. They taught forgiveness. They didn't seek vengeance. They didn't even seek justice for themselves, which in an honor-shame culture was un unheard of. In addition to the acceptance and the forgiveness, the early church demonstrated a profound level of, of compassion. Now, now, every human being at that time was expected to have some compassion, to care for some people, but oftentimes the expectation was limited to your family, your tribe, your people. But Christians then were known as being promiscuous in the kinds of people they helped, in the kinds of people they served, in the kinds of people that they, they cared for. Demonstrating an unprecedented level of grace, uh, sacrifice for, for those that were so distant. Our Christians would oftentimes rescue abandoned babies and raise them as their own son, as their own daughter. Whenever famines, plagues, diseases would sweep through towns, villages, regions, while most healthy, able-bodied people would flee, Christians would oftentimes stay behind. They would care for the sick. 
oftentimes at the expense and cost of their, their own life. So these are just some of the things that we can look back and see. This is how the early church did it then. Things that set them apart from everyone else that pointed them to Jesus. And thus, the obvious question for us is, what does that look like for us today? In our context, in our world, to live such a good life that produces good deeds that point people to Jesus. Now, Peter doesn't tell us what that looks like in our context. But what he tells us is where to begin, where to focus our effort, where to focus our our energy. Going back to verse 11, it says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. English Standard Version translates sinful desires as passions of the flesh. Peter says, abstain from passions of the flesh. Now, hypothetically speaking, it's hypothetical, not real, but let's say that today I decide, May 7th, 2023, the age of 43, that beginning today, I am going to get in the best shape of my life that I'm going to get healthy, I'm going to get jacked, ripped, cut, shredded, buff, yoked, whatever it looks like. I'm going to feel good, and I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to look good. And I am determined to get in the best shape of my life. Now, that being my desire, it wouldn't be hard. It would be relatively easy to discover what to do. I could just go online, YouTube, how to get ripped. Right, there's going to be plenty of things that I could watch that would tell me what exercises to do, how often to do it, what kind of foods to eat. And I can find easily places to do it, get gym equipment in my home. I could get a membership at a local gym. And you know, living in our day and age with technology, with our resources that we're blessed with, all of those things would be accessible and affordable. It would not be hard. Those things would be easy. However, thus, right, my biggest challenge would not be a lack of information. The information's out there. It wouldn't be a lack of resources. Fortunately, we have those resources. It wouldn't even be a lack of desire. I, I have that desire. To be honest, I've had this desire since junior high. <laughs> right? I mean, for, you know. Right? That's not the biggest challenge. The biggest obstacle is not that there's people out there trying to, like, sabotage me, right? prevent me from going to the gym. Right? The biggest obstacle, the biggest challenge is that while I have these desires to get fit, within me are these competing desires that wage war on my desires to get fit. Right? I have the desire to veg out and do nothing. I have a desire to eat food that tastes good. Desire for chips. Desire for glazed donuts, powdered donuts, sprinkled donuts, cake donuts, old-fashioned donuts. I have a desire to avoid physical pain, physical exhaustion. And it's these competing desires that make it difficult for me of achieving my lifelong dream. You see, what Peter is saying is in the same way. 
right? What, what hinders our ability to fulfill our purpose as the church? What gets in the way of living such good lives that produce good deeds, that point people to Jesus, is that we have these desires of the flesh that wage war on our soul, that compete with the new desires and the new values that we've been given when we were given a new birth. You know, I was thinking the other day, um, it's just kind of me processing out loud, but you ever wonder, like, why work feels like work? <laughs> right? Like, why, why can't work feel like play? Like, how many hours did you play this week? 40? Dude, I played like 55 hours this week. It was amazing. Right? You never hear, you know, people say, like, three more days and I get to work. Right? It's always like, oh, I have to go to work. Or, oh, I have so much work to do, right? And it's always in a negative connotation. But the irony is, like, we actually value work a lot, right? Most of us spent our entire childhood preparing and training and doing work so that eventually we could work. Work pays the bills. Work provides, right? Some of us find meaning in our work. Some of us even enjoy our work. But at the end of the day, work feels like like work, right? And a lot of times, work feels like work because, not because we don't like work, not because we don't value work, not because we don't want to work. Most of us who work, it's because we want to work, but it's because we have these competing desires right? that wage war, that compete with our desire to work, like desires like spending time with family and friends, desire to, to bike, desire to play pickleball, desire to just relax, Veg out, watch Netflix, conflict with each other. And I think in the same way, this is why oftentimes obedience can feel sometimes like work. Why spiritual disciplines, I mean, the fact that we have to call it disciplines can feel like, like work. Right? We don't call it like spiritual hobbies, spiritual playtime. It's why sometimes, if we're honest, like coming to church can feel a little like work. Maybe giving financially, serving in a ministry can feel like, like work. It's not because we don't want to do those things, but we have these desires of the flesh that are waging war on our soul. So what Peter says, he says, rid yourself, abstain from these desires. And to abstain from these desires means that we not only give in to these desires, but we do everything we can to get rid of those desires. That we abstain from the desire itself. And what Peter says is that if we can rid ourselves of these desires, we will live lives that produce good deeds that point people to Jesus. A few weeks ago in our staff meeting, um, we had broken up into small groups and, and we were asking the question, or answering the question, if we could do one thing for God and know that we wouldn't fail, like what would we do? Right? If we could do one thing for God and know that we wouldn't fail, what would we do? And, and in our small group, 
a few of us, right away, we said something to the extent that we would share our faith more. We would tell more people about Jesus. We would invite them into the community, into, into the church. Right? Because we, we want to do those things, but there is right, a fear of rejection. There's fear that things will be awkward, that we might you know, make people feel uncomfortable. Right? And it was obvious that while we have a desire to do things, there are competing desires within us. Right? What would our lives look like? if we didn't have these desires of the flesh that are competing with the desires that God has given us. Now, when we think about desires of the flesh or when we think about sinful desires, um, you know, maybe the, kind of the, the more obvious ones come to, to mind first, right? Things like lust or greed or hatred, violence, vengeance, and those would definitely fit under the umbrella uh, as sinful desires. Those would definitely compete and wage war on what God is wanting us to do. But I don't think these are the ones that Peter had in mind, what he was most concerned about when he's writing to this church, because later on in chapter 4, he's going to actually tell them, these are the things you used to do, but you don't do them anymore. That's why you're being persecuted. That's why you're having a hard time. That's why people are ridiculing you, because you stopped doing these things. So these aren't the kinds of fleshly desires that Peter is most concerned about. But from the context, what Peter is most concerned about, the desires of the flesh that are perhaps more subtle, yet equally if not more dangerous, are the desires for things like worldly comfort and security in, in material things. The desire to prioritize oneself over the well-being of another. Right? You see, it would have been so easy for these believers, these churches, to want to fulfill their purpose and live a comfortable and secure life too. It would have been so tempting for them to just ease off the ministry throttle just ever so slightly to perhaps lessen some of the persecution, lessen some of the, the hardships. Right? It would have been so tempting for them to just perhaps compromise just a little on certain convictions in order to gain a little bit of favor, a little bit of credibility from, from the outside world. It would have been so tempting for them to just withdraw a little bit to insulate themselves and just focus on one another in order to make their lives a little more easier, a little more comfortable. Right? You see, all these desires wouldn't make them a, a bad witness of Jesus. It would just hinder their ability to, to be a really good witness for Jesus. And this is what Jesus warned his followers. In Matthew 6, 22 to 23, it says, the, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now, when he's talking about eyes, he's not talking about our actual vision, but he's talking about ultimately our desire. You see, what we desire, what we perceive as important and valuable and necessary, that's going to affect how we live out our entire life. Now, I'm not saying that it's bad to have things like money, to be successful, to have earthly possessions, 
But the question comes down to motive and desire. And that's the question I want to invite us to, to ask ourselves this morning. Is are there desires in us that compete with the desire to fulfill our purpose? Desires that are waging war on our souls. Maybe it's in the, the realm of the, the obvious ones, things like lust and greed, anger, vengeance. And those things are very real. And it's a daily struggle. But perhaps for some of us, the, the greatest temptation are the, the subtle desires for worldly comfort, for security in material things. Right? Because if we're honest, in many ways, our culture, the Western church, which I'm just a part of as much as anyone else, it's become kind of normal to want to fulfill God's purpose for our lives and to attain worldly comfort, material security. The ideal scenario for many of us is to pursue both and to attain both. And a lot of times it's, it's debatable as to which one takes precedence, which one has priority in our lives. But we need to, to be willing to acknowledge, be willing to see that perhaps some of those desires within our desires to pursue those things are actually desires that are waging war on our souls. Desires that are competing with what God is wanting for us and from us. Desires that prevent us and hinder us from living out our identity as God's chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, his special possession. So as we move back into a time of worship, as we eventually we have communion, let us come before God and, and ask him to invite the Spirit to, to speak in us and to, to reveal if there are any desires within us. Now, we're not going to change those desires overnight, nor are we expected to be the ones to fix it ourselves using our strength and our abilities. But as God begins to speak, as he begins to highlight perhaps some of those desires, we can surrender it to him. Invite him, allow him to speak into them, to change us, to transform us, to ultimately rid us of anything that is competing with him and who we're called to be so that we can live life that produce good deeds that point people to him. Will you pray with me?